Well, this morning, uh, I'm really glad for the chance to spend some time together with all of you in Galatians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there. Galatians chapter 5, one of the first letters that Paul wrote to churches that he had founded to try to help them continue to understand what it means to follow Jesus. One of the ways that we uh, feed ourselves as a congregation is that each week we move sequentially, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We will just choose the book that we're going to be in for a season and then the next sermon is just decided by wherever we left off the last week. We just pick up with the next verse and move right on through. What we love about that approach is that it keeps those of us who are teaching humble and keeps us fresh. And if we weren't just going sequentially through these books, well then you guys would just have to put up with whatever I thought was important to say today. But you know what happened this week? I came to Monday morning, I turned to Galatians chapter 5, I started reading in verse 1 and I had to decide what does this text mean? Because I'm not sure yet. And how is this text useful to us? Because I'm not sure yet. So I had to be in the word, working for my own benefit, for my own teaching and education, for myself to be shaped, in order to be able to serve all of you with what I shared with you this morning. We love that. We love that it makes all of our teachers, it puts all of us up under the word of God where we all need to be every day. So we're just going with the next, seri- uh, next sermon in, in our series this morning. Last week we finished up chapter 4. Today we start chapter 5, verse 1. So for one reason, there are a couple of reasons I'm glad that we're here uh, to, to be together with you guys this morning. One reason is that the first several verses that we're going to look at in chapter 5 are actually a really great summary of the main point of this letter. So even if it's been a while since you've looked at Galatians, you've been studying other parts of the scriptures and, and preaching through other parts of the scriptures, um, you'll get a pretty good summary for the first little bit of this sermon of what we've been considering together for the last, what, three or four months now. So I'm glad for that. It's, it's, it's good timing in God's providence that we're where we are. Another reason I'm glad is that in this passage, Paul takes the main point that he's been working over and over throughout this letter and he applies it to the lives of his friends there are a couple of things that he pulls out of this main point that he's been hitting over and over that are deeply influential for the lives we're going to live this week. We need to hear, in other words, and can, can easily use what Paul is teaching in the verses we're going to consider together this morning. One of the things that Paul's been talking about a lot and that he'll continue to talk about in the passage we're going to consider now is freedom. It's a big concept for him. It's really important to the letter he's writing. He wants his friends in Galatia to be free. And he believes that that the gospel, what Jesus has done for them, gives them freedom. But he also knows that that freedom and their enjoyment of it is also fragile. Their experience of it is fragile because they've got other voices in their life that are trying to pull them away, pull them back to things that they once trusted in, pull them away from Jesus and his usefulness to them as their only hope. So Paul's been talking about freedom both to remind them of what's so wonderful about Jesus and to warn them against giving it up for what will only enslave them again. That's the theme uh, of the the larger section of this letter and it's where we come to again today. What you'll notice, I'm going to read the whole section here in just a moment, verses 1 to 6, but I want you to notice that in in, in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul makes the statement that hangs over everything else we're going to look at today. He says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the line I want to unpack for the rest of our time. Because in it, two important things come to us. The freedom that Christ has given us. What is it that he set us free from? 
Christ has set us free. From what? That's where he'll, that's where he'll bring our attention in verses two to four. What he set us free from. But then he, he wants us to really know what, he, what he's pushing us to is to enjoy the freedom that we've been set free for. So we've been set free from, but we've also been set free for freedom. So what is that freedom? What have we been set free from and what have we been set free for? Those are the two things I want us to consider together this morning. So in the, in the handout that you should have received on the way in, there's a blank page that you can use if you'd like to take notes. You may just want to jot down at the top. These are going to be the two main points. What we're set free from, what we're set free for. Now I want to begin by reading the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is God's word. I want us to first think about this freedom that Christ has given us. What is this freedom from? What was the slavery that Paul's warning his friends against entering again? And I want to just tell you, I'm just going to give you a line that I think answers that question and then we'll spend a few minutes trying to understand it together through what Paul says. What we're set free from, what Paul refers to here as a yoke of slavery, is the suffocating pressure to justify our lives. We've been set free from, in Christ, the suffocating pressure to justify our lives. I think that's what Paul mostly has in mind in verses 2 to 4. That's where he's describing this kind of slavery. He doesn't want them to put, them, put on themselves again. Did you notice the word justified? It comes out in verse 4. There he's talking about those who would be justified by the law. I'm going I'm to talk through some of what he says about this word justified in the, verse, in the verses that we've just read. But, but I think it's important before I do that, before I get into the, the details of what this word means and how it helps us understand the freedom Christ has given us, I think, we, I think we have to just talk about the word itself and make sure it's clear. Before we see what Paul's saying about it, we need to make sure the word makes sense. It's a really important word in this letter. And it's a word that means worthy. It's a status you hold. When you hear justified, think about a status that you hold. A label spread over your life or who you are. Think about it as like the stamp of approval that a manufacturer gives to a product so that you know that's the real thing. That's, it's up to code. It's, it fits the standard. I don't know if you guys knew this, but did you know, maybe this is, I'm just going to say it anyway. Did you know that Jenny's ice cream is now available in a, in a, in a local grocery store? At shall we say... A very competitive price, a very, that's not a tough competition to win for the record, but a very competitive price. Some friends and I, we had some Jenny's ice cream bought from this local grocery store. Don't hate on me. Bought it from their local grocery store at this competitive price. But you know, it's risky to buy a product that, that, that comes from a manufacturer that's very picky about its products when you're buying it from some other channel, not from that, directly from that manufacturer. Well, how did we know we were getting the real thing? 
when you go to the grocery store, you look at the, at the, 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 little, the little pint of ice cream and you look for that stamp. You look for that label spread over it by the Jenny's manufacturers who say, yep, that's ours. Yep, what's in this is up to code. Yep, what's in this is the real thing. It's, it's worthy. So when Paul uses the word justified, he has something a lot like that in mind, but think of it spread over your life. Yes, this person is justified. They're worthy. They are what they should be. That's who they are. Now, this word isn't one we use very often. It, it, it's, it's, it's something that you're much more likely to hear in, in a worship service like this one or as you read the scriptures, passages like this one, than to use it with your friends. But, but it is, it's speaking of something that is deeply important to all of us at a level inside our hearts that we won't ever fully see into. It's deep in us, this concern to be justified. The concern to be justified lies behind the pride we feel when we think we've done better than other people. It lies behind the shame we feel when we've not measured up somehow. It lies behind much of our drive to push harder and harder at whatever it is that matters to us. And it lies behind our angst that keeps us wondering if we've done enough. One of the most powerful images that I know of, of this this concern, this angst over whether I've done enough, comes at the beginning of a, of a well-known, beloved movie about World War II called Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure most of you guys have probably seen this. At the beginning of this Steven Spielberg movie, you see an elderly gentleman with his family, his children, who are adults now, their children, in the uh, U.S. military cemetery in Normandy, where the beaches were stormed on D-Day. You see him go up to this grave, a grave that's labeled with the uh, name of a man that he knew in the war. And you see him break down in tears. He's sobbing like a child before this grave. His wife comes up to comfort him and he asks her, tell me, tell me my life was good enough. Tell me I'm a good man, he says. That's a question about justification. That's a question all of us face. Maybe we'll face it more acutely as we near the end of our lives, but it's a question that surfaces for all of us at different times in different places. Have I done enough? Am I a good man? As the movie uh, goes forward, it flashes back to explain why he's asking this question the way that he is. It explains why he's so fearful, so fixated on the value of his life and whether he'd done enough. Because what the movie shows you is that as a soldier in the war, he was... Part of the D-Day invasion, trapped behind German lines and rescued by a group of men who all put their lives on the line to save his. And I, uh, at the risk of a spoiler alert, the leader of that group of men who came to rescue him behind those lines is killed, trying to save him. And with his dying breaths, he basically grabs young Private Ryan and says to him, earn this. Earn it. And that put a yoke of slavery on Private Ryan's life that he lived with from that day forward. And one reason I'm, I'm spending so much time on this illustration here at the top is that I believe that scenario comes through so vividly in that movie is very close to what Paul's worried about for his friends here in Galatia. And that freedom from a burden like that one is what he believes Jesus has given to them through the gospel. See, Paul, like the rest of the Bible, believes that when it comes to justification, when it comes to whether or not your life has been good enough, 
when it comes to whether or not you're worthy. Though there may be lots of ways we try to justify our lives. Though there may be lots of people or places we seek that stamp of approval. The only approval that really matters is God's. Only God can justify. So what matters most is what God says about you. What God sees when he looks at you. You are summed up by whatever God says you are. So the question is, how do we become worthy in God's eyes? Put another way, what does it take for God to look at us and to love what he sees? That's the question that is very close to Paul's heart and front, on, on the front of his mind as he writes this letter. And it's where, answering that question is where he and the people he was writing to correct did not see eye to eye. See, the teachers that had come into these churches that Paul started after Paul left, they were providing a different answer to this question. What does it take to be worthy in God's eyes? Paul had given one answer. These other teachers came in and gave another answer. That brings us to what, more to the details of what I've read for you. Did you notice the word circumcision comes up over and over in just these, this handful of verses? For Paul, that word in this letter is really important, just like justified. But it has a lot more to do with the law of Moses on the whole than with the specific act of circumcision. He's actually not just worried about whether or not these Christians who were raised, raised in pagan homes were not circumcised as babies then go back and submit to circumcision now that they're Christians. He is worried about that, but he's worried about a lot more than that. See, for him and for these teachers, circumcision was kind of a code word for the whole law of Moses. That's why he says in verse 3, if you become circumcised, if you take on this entry you pass through circumcision into the law of Moses well now you're obligated to keep the whole law you got to keep the whole thing for him when he's talking about circumcision here he's talking about a different way to be justified before God a different way to become worthy circumcision is a code word for a different answer to that question and what Paul writes just very simply what he's saying in verses two to four is that this new way, this way these teachers are bringing in with them, that way is incompatible with Jesus. It's either or. You can't have it both ways. He basically says that several different times in these three verses. Look at it. If you accept circumcision, if you take on the law of Moses as the way that you become worthy in God's eyes, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's either or, straight up. I testify again, if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. That means, verse 4, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. It's either or. See, I think the reason he puts it this way, the reason he's kind of summing up his case to this point to say, you can't have it both ways, is that they thought they could. They were looking for a kind of combo package where it starts with Jesus, and Jesus maybe gives you forgiveness that gives you a clean slate for everything you've done before, but now it's on you. You sort of take the baton from Jesus, and you run with it. As if Jesus and individual Christians partner together to make sure those Christians are worthy before God. They weren't denying you needed Jesus. They were denying that you only needed Jesus to be worthy before God. In other words, it seems to me, they were thinking and living with a scenario a whole lot like that one in Saving Private Ryan. Where Jesus comes to rescue those who were without hope on their own. Where Jesus gives up his life 
so that they could have a chance. And where Jesus, from the cross, looks down at them and says, earn this. Earn it. And what Paul wants them to know is that if you take that bargain, it's a devil's bargain. Because you will never be free. You will always wonder if you've done enough and you will die not knowing. This is a different gospel altogether from the one that Paul preached to them. And the true gospel, Paul's gospel, brings not slavery but freedom. Friends, it's right that we should obey God. The law, as it expresses God's character to us, is good. We should obey. But the law does not bring life. And it cannot bring righteousness before God. It only brings a curse. Because none of us have obeyed it perfectly. We have sinned every day that we've ever lived. And that means it's already impossible for us to justify ourselves before a holy God who is right to demand perfection. And we know that in our bones, even if we don't admit that in our minds. And that's why we're so angsty about whether we've done enough. It's why we're so angsty about who likes what we post. It's why we're so angsty about how we're measuring up compared to other people and how they measure up. Our sin shows up in that insecurity because deep inside us we know we can't be justified by what we do. And it's too late for that. And that sin brings not just insecurity, but a curse. The curse of the law, Paul has said earlier in this letter. And it sits on all of us on our own. But Christ, Paul has said, (laughs) Christ, the only truly innocent one, he became a curse for us, Paul says, Galatians chapter 3. That curse that was on us, he took it. And he died a death he didn't deserve to die. Also that he could give us a righteousness and we could never hope to earn. So that when we trust in him and stand in him rather than standing on our own, we can actually be worthy in the eyes of the God who made us. Because our justification comes as a gift that's complete in every way, all up and down, from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I just want you to know here, before we move on into the practical applications of this, that that Christ can set you free today from the slavery you may be living under without even recognizing it. But your life won't be worthy through a partnership with Jesus where you give some and he gives some and together you make up the right amount. It is all or nothing. You can stand on your own or Jesus can stand for you. You can have your own righteousness or you can have his, but you can't have it both ways. And I get that that comes with a cost. This this gospel doesn't do much for our pride. It won't do much for your ability to brag. It puts boasting to death because your only hope is the same hope as any other person anywhere else who will claim it no matter how much more of a mess they've made of their lives than you have of yours. There is no pride in this gospel and that costs us something. But what we gain, (laughs) what we gain is freedom 
Because a love that you didn't have to earn is a love that you can't lose. And that means we can live. It also means that it's a freedom anybody can have no matter how badly they've ruined their life already. That means you, friend. You can be free this morning. And I'd love the chance to talk to you about how after the service is over this morning. Well, so far, just these first couple of verses, the focus has been what we've been set free from, the slavery that the law brings. If you look to it to justify you, it's a yoke that you will wear for all of your life and you will never be able to rest. That's what Christ has set us free from. So don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, Paul says in verse 1. But Paul also says in verse 1 that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So what is this freedom he set us free for? What does it look like to enjoy it and to live in it? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. When we're set free from the burden to justify our lives, what are we set free to do with our lives? I think this is the question Paul is answering in verses 5 and 6. So in verses 2 to 4, he's warning them, don't do that. In verse 5, he switches to a positive tone. He starts talking about other things, other views, other ideas, and he starts talking to them. He would speak their names in this spot if he wanted to. It would fit perfectly for him to have in his mind the people that 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 he's... ministered to that he's told this gospel to the people who are now flirting with these other ways of being justified before God now he's on to them he has them in mind as their pastor and he's saying to them do this we don't have to justify our lives what do we do two things one in verse five one in verse six we have been set free by Jesus first to wait and then to love we've been set free by faith, to wait. That's verse 5. And I didn't expect that when I first started unpacking this, this passage this week. Through the Spirit, he says, by faith, we, me and you, Galatians, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait. I needed some time to think through why this is what freedom looks like. Why it's a good thing to, to, to wait. I, I I think when we know what he means by hope of righteousness in verse 5, the, that what we wait for, I think when we know what he means by hope of righteousness, it'll become easier to understand why waiting is something you do and something that's freeing. So let me talk about hope of righteousness for a minute. I'll make sure that's clear to you. And then we'll talk about what it is to eagerly wait for it. As believers who are set free by grace, those who get our righteousness from Jesus not from the law, we're fixed on the hope of righteousness. I think this is what he means. At one level, when you trust in God to justify your life because of Jesus, you trust that God already, when he looks on you, sees Jesus. Paul talks about it as being inside of Christ. It's almost like we put him on. It's almost like you wear him like a jacket, like I've got a jacket on now. His righteousness wraps us up. So when God looks what God sees is, is his son, who's worthy, who does measure up, and who stands for us. And when we trust in Christ, we're we're trusting that right now, already, completely, we are righteous in God's eyes. We do trust in that, and that's true according to the gospel. 
because Jesus is perfect and beautiful and absolutely worthy of the love of his Father. And in him we are too, as worthy as we'll ever be. But the reality is, for now, there's still a lot of things in us that don't look righteous at all, right? For now, we don't, we don't see what God sees. We claim it by faith that he's for us, loves us, and sees Jesus when he looks at us. But we don't see that yet, not what he sees. We still see who we are on our own. And we have an enemy. An enemy the New Testament refers to as the accuser of the brethren who makes it his life's mission to remind us of all the unrighteousness that's still inside of us. To whisper in our ear, God couldn't love you. After what you did last night again? After what you felt when she said that? God couldn't love you. That's his job. That's what he does with his life. Accuse us. And he's got a lot of material to work with. If we're honest, he's got a lot to work with. So we still see with our eyes who we are by ourselves. And though in the gospel we're told we're already righteous, it's hard for us to believe it sometimes. What the Bible tells us is that there is a day coming. The day of the Lord a great day of judgment where everything every one of us has ever done will be made visible and laid bare. Where in the presence of God and visible to the whole world, things we've never even seen in ourselves will be accounted for completely. We're told that on that day, we will see our sin more vividly and clearly than we have ever seen it before. We will know more deeply than we've ever known before why we need a savior beyond ourselves. And that as those sins are revealed on that great day, Jesus will stand for us before God's throne, standing tall against every one of them, bearing the scars of the wounds where he shed his blood for us, holding them out so that that the accuser of the brethren who would take that material and accuse us before God, is cast down, Revelation 12.10 says. On that day, the righteousness we claim by faith now will be visible for all to see, even us. And we live now in the hope of that day where once and for all, worthy is pronounced over our lives. But for that day, friends, we have to wait. We have to wait. And Paul says, we have now been set free to wait eagerly for that day. You notice he says, eagerly wait? That's important. This is an active waiting. This is not a sit back, put your feet up on your ottoman, get a nice comfy feather pillow and you know, veg out in front of the TV kind of waiting. It's not like that. It is an active waiting that actively rejects other options and focuses relentlessly on this one and only hope. Because until that day, we will be tempted to try to pull the sting of the day of judgment ourselves. We will be tempted to try to make our case stronger than it already is. 
tempted to try to wash clean what we've already done and avoid what we might yet do, not in order to please God, not out of love for him, but to protect ourselves from that day. Eagerly waiting on the hope of righteousness given by Jesus keeps us from spinning our wheels in that fruitless effort. We're set free to wait. I don't know if this analogy is going to work, but um, I'm going to go for it and trust you guys to be charitable with me as I do so. I'm trying to think about what does this kind of active waiting look like? How is this what freedom looks like? When you know you are who you are in Jesus and you don't have to add to it and you can't take away from it, what, what, what does this active, eager waiting look like in practice? My boys and I were watching some college football yesterday and you know what we saw over and over? Christmas commercials. Christmas commercials. And mostly it's still those ridiculous ones where people surprise their loved ones with new Cadillacs. Does that really happen? <laughs> One spouse just out of nowhere buying a new Cadillac for them without consulting them on what color they want or what model they prefer or you know, lease terms and whether or not they can fit it. Maybe that happens. I don't know. It's not in my world. Anyway, those are the ones that were going yesterday, those kind of Christmas commercials. We were trick-or-treating on Thursday night and we're watching Christmas commercials on Saturday, but I digress. The, the point is, we're watching these Christmas commercials. Here it is, way out in front of Christmas. And I was thinking about the fact that there is a kind of freedom that comes from online shopping early and then waiting. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Have you guys ever been to Cool Springs in December? It's terrible. It's like one of Dante's rings of inferno down there in December. It's awful. I have more times than I'd like to admit found myself in the position, though, of still needing to justify my life by the gifts that I'll provide to my children, having not put enough advanced thought into it and being subjected to cool springs in December. That's bondage. Last year, we sat on that road that goes behind the mall. I don't remember, Mallory maybe, or Mallard or something. Literally, without moving for an hour. That's not an exaggeration. Now, there's a nostalgia in me that wants to be part of the whole Christmas buzz, you know? And like to get down there where everybody's happy and bustling and carrying their packages around, you know? And then, and then they, they, they try to draw you in with these last-minute deals, that make you wonder, that tempt your heart to think that you're actually not ready yet, you're not righteous, not worthy yet, maybe you could do more. And it sucks you into that, that rat race, that bondage that is last minute Christmas shopping in Cool Springs. There is an alternative now. Amazon Prime, or you know, fill in your blank, where, where you could actually just get the things that you think are, are, are helpful and nice gifts, get them early, have them shipped to you, and then you wait. Now, in that waiting, you're eager. At least we are. We are longing to see the joy that our kids get from what we bought from them six weeks before the big day. There is an eagerness, a kind of focus to it. So there's, there's, there's something to, active, something to do. But compared to the eagerness that drives me into that traffic on a Saturday... In December, well, this is freedom. Because now what I, all I just have to do is just focus. We have enough. It's good enough. Don't listen to those over there who, th who tell me that it will be better if. Just don't do that. 
be free and wait. I, th- I think that's what Paul has in mind here. We eagerly wait. We focus on the hope of righteousness that is not going to get any better through anything else we might do in the meantime. So get out of the rat race. Just don't do it. Don't go down there. I think that's what he's saying. Just wait. But wait eagerly. Focus. Long for that day. And trust as you do so that you will not always be what you are. That God, by his power, through his grace, has the, has the ability to make you something new. And on that day, you'll see it. Christ has set us free from the stress, but not from the focus on that great day of judgment. He set us free just to eagerly wait. There's one more aspect of this freedom that I want us to focus on before we, before we pray and sing in response to what we've talked about today. This one comes out in verse 6. We've been set free from the suffocating pressure to justify our lives. There is no way to live, and in Jesus, you don't have to live that way. He set us free for, instead, waiting eagerly on what he has promised to give us. And he set us free for love. That's verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He's been saying that a lot in this letter. He's just said it again, verses 2 to 4. Circumcision won't help you. Does not add to your case. So don't go down that road. It counts for nothing. So what does count? What is important? What should we do with our freedom? That's the end of verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Faith working through love. What should we do with our lives now that we don't have to work to justify them? We should love one another. Paul's just hitting a theme that's all over the New Testament. I mean, it's all through his letters. It's all through John's writings. It's it's everywhere you look. You're not going to look far. You're not going to have to look far to see New Testament writers taking the truth about what God has done for us in Jesus, the way that he's loved us, and driving it into the relationships that believers have with one another and calling them to a love that looks like the love shared with us by God in Jesus. When you've been loved by God in Christ, you're set free to love others in his name. In other words, rather than you're spending your life trying to build up a resume, you're set free to give your life away. Rather than trying to store up in your life and think of your life as a reservoir of righteousness, you're constantly pouring into it, trying to build up your stock. Rather than thinking of yourself that way, you're free to pour yourself out. Whatever I have is yours to have. It's to be deployed for your good. That's the way you're set free to think and to live for those who need you. In other words, friends, what you're free to do is to love without any calculation, without any evaluation, without any pull of self-protection. Do you know what I'm talking about? See, on my own, I am not as free to love as I wish I was. There are a lot of things that hold me back in my love for other people. I mean, ultimately, people hold me back from my love for other people, right? People are people. Some of them are easier to love than others. Sometimes people are hard to talk to. Sometimes they're socially awkward. Sometimes they lack self-awareness. Sometimes they lack the awareness that other people have ideas and needs too. Sometimes people say hurtful things. Sometimes people misunderstand you. Sometimes people expect the world of you and get disappointed. Hypothetically here, just speaking hypothetically, 
Some people just might be harder to love than other people. Am I right? Do you have those people in mind? And honestly, on my own, in what Paul would call my flesh, I'd rather love the easy ones. Wouldn't you? I'd rather love the ones who see how much I'm doing and say thank you. I'd rather love the ones who love me back and don't cause me any pain. And on my own, I'm always going to want to ask. Before I love somebody else in a tangible way, I'm going to want to ask. Is this worth it? If I make this investment of love, will it pay off? What will I get in return? Would my investment actually yield a bigger return if I put it somewhere else? I mean, there's only so much of me to go around. Better to focus on love stocks where I've got the most hope of a return, right? On my own, in my flesh, that's the kind of calculation I'm going to make before I love any of my neighbors. But not in Christ. In Christ, friends, we're set free from the self-protection, from the self-justifying drive to get more from the self-promotion that otherwise taints our best acts of love in Christ we're set free because in Christ our lives are hidden safe and secure in who he is and in what he gives and he set us free for freedom the freedom to give ourselves away without calculation so I wonder Are you living with this freedom? Let me put a different question on it for you to sit with and to pray through. Do other people in your life have to do more to earn your love than you did to earn God's love? I think it's a healthy question to sit with, not because of the crushing load of guilt that can come with it. Christ has set us free from that. But because in freedom for which we've been set free we have the promise of a spirit who is right now in us forming Christ so that his love comes out of us by nature so you're set free to do self-evaluation without pretending you're better than you are so that you can pray with more focus and repent with more regularity over all the ways you expect people to do more to earn your love than you did to earn his I want to encourage you to, to sit with that question to discuss that question with your friends, to be as specific in your answer as you can be, and then to pray for the repentance and faith by which Jesus' beautiful character comes out in your life. I want to pray that for us right now before we sing in response to this word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of this morning, for the joy we've already had in thinking about your word and celebrating your gospel through the the songs we've sung, through sitting with it more deeply, just, just marinating in this text. And now we thank you for the spirit you've promised to send out with us so that we have this word, not just now for these few moments together, but in our hearts, doing good work all week long. And we pray that you would do that work in us. We know it must be your work to do. We have tried and failed enough times to give up on renovating our own lives. We pray that you would do this work in us. 
And we pray that you would use us and our friendships with one another to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.